1: Listener discretion is advised.
2: And everyone in the world of true crime has a story to tell about a case that they worked on or maybe something that they lived through. Some are high profile, some you've never heard of, but they are all fascinating. Today we are talking about the Chicago Mob with Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Jake Halpern. Hey, Jake, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me on. Oh, I can't wait to talk uh, organized crime with you. One of my favorite topics personally. (laughs) Uh, Jake's got a a new podcast out called Mobland that focuses on organized crime in Chicago and more specifically on a controversial mob attorney who then turned FBI informant named Bob Cooley. And Jake, you spent more than a year investigating this and doing interviews with key figures. It's interesting, you know, when you do um, a piece that's based on the events decades past, do, do you feel that the recollections are turn more glowing depending on who you're talking to about the drama of what happened? Definitely. I mean, look, time
1: takes its toll on memories, right? And so, yes, sometimes people want to see it with rose-colored lenses. Uh, sometimes people selectively remember things, right? Uh, and then other times, people talk about things that they just for whatever reason, weren't ready to or able to talk about at the time. And I think that's really the only advantage to doing it from all these years later, because a lot is is lost, some people die, et cetera. But then you just get people who just open up and and things get declassified. And yes. you know, that and and that that's a as someone who hadn't done a lot of reporting on things from the past, that was such a treasure trove um, in these two seasons to just get a hold of all these um wiretaps etc that I wouldn't have gotten if I was reporting at the time
2: do you find that the access here and I know that your central character here is basically you know Bob Cooley who was the attorney for the mob which is always a very central figure in organized crime right. um, it, it really is and there are always many questions as to whether are you know are they really members of the mob or are they the just the the attorney that works for the mob do you know what I mean well
1: Sometimes I think there are situations where the lawyers are lawyers. Now, what do they know? Usually they probably know a lot because what they know is protected by attorney-client privilege. But in this case, Bob was much more than just the mob lawyer. He was the fixer. He was the interface with this very corrupt Chicago system. So as is the case in this podcast, there's a hitman who gets caught for murder and indicted. And so it's not just that they hire some slick lawyer who the hitman tells all this information to, and the lawyer does his best to argue the case.
0: We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows from the Nespod studios. Join us as we give you the best of the best health and wellness updates you can rely on for the treatment of chronic health problems.
1: No, Bob is actually fixing the case, finding the judge, bribing him and getting the hitman off. And so in that regard, Bob's much more than a lawyer. He is the kind of political arm of the mob, making sure that its members are protected and have more or less impunity from the legal system. So so Bob, he was a mob lawyer, but he was much more than that because that service that he provided, basically a get out of jail free card, was what enabled the mob to operate the way it did, which was without much repercussions.
2: So basically we're talking about the 70s and 80s Chicago.
1: Yeah, we're talking about 70s, and, and and it's like important to set the scene. So 70s and 80s Chicago, um, you walk in, Emma, you walk into the courthouse because you have a speeding ticket. And the halls of the courthouse would be filled with people telling you, hey, I can get you off just pay me a little money I know the judge. <laughs> and so yeah it was the money lenders in the temple. I mean corruption was in plain sight and you didn't have to be mobbed up to be able to to fix your case. Now what happens is is that the mob has their own kind of even deeper wired system of corruption. And so even as in, as you get into the 80s some of that out in the open corruption starts getting cleaned up the mob still has its own system of fixers, of corrupt judges, of paid off cops, so that it can tell its members, hey, you stick with us, you're not gonna get any trouble. And if you think, like for one second, if you think about the mob as a a corporation, or as a company, you know, if I'm hiring you, I might say, hey, come work for me, you'll have dental. Well, the (laughs) the mob's bitch is like, hey, come work for us. Even if you kill someone, you won't go to jail because we'll pay the judge off, because we have this lawyer coolie who can fix anything and more than that they have this guy named pat marcy who's kind of the mob's political czar and he pulls the puppet strings of all these corrupt officials and so this is not only a way for the mob to achieve its ends of doing illegal activity it's also this huge benefit that it can bestow upon all its members
2: so who's the mob boss at the time for chicago
1: Well, there's different ones, but a is the one that they that they that that everyone talks about. In my story, it's um, I I actually focus on a kind of guy, a a notch below him, which is Pat Marcy, who was the guy who was like their secretary of state, if you will, but handling all governmental corruption.
2: So then who hired the attorney or how did Bob Cooley get in, get into his position? How did that how does that just happen?
1: Right. It doesn't. And of course, nothing just happens. But the way that basically it works is that he Bob becomes friends with a lawyer named Johnny Diarco Jr. And Johnny Diarco Jr.'s father is uh, senior is in this corrupt political machine known as the First Ward.
2: And ah, so, the wards, yes. The wards,
1: right? And the first ward, like it is one of 50 districts, political districts in the city of Chicago, but everybody knows that the first ward is more than just that. Yeah, sure, it encompasses the downtown. It's a really important geographical ward, but it's also the mob's ward, it's the epicenter of their political power. And so Junior is this kind of really interesting character. He wants to be a poet. He moves out to hey Ashbury for a while. He writes his poetry, and his dad kind of pulls him back into the family business, basically, and says, "You're going to be a lawyer, and you're and you're going to have these kind of mob connections." And Bob uh, befriends him, and through him gets drawn into the first ward. And when he's in the first ward, the top the guy at the top of the first ward, Pat Marcy. Uh, Gets word of Bob and says to him, you know what? I, I know about you. I heard about what you can do. I need your help. I've got a big case coming through that I need handled. That was their term. And it was the, the murder of a guy named Billy Logan. And he was murdered by a famous hitman uh, named uh, Harry Alamon. And he says, do you think you can help me with this? Now this is a heater case because no hitman had been indicted in as long as anyone can remember. And this thing's coming down the pipe. And so Bob is both eager to do it right, because this will prove his bona fides and his worth in the first ward. But he also knows this is not going to be an easy one to fix because of all the attention it's going to get. And he needs to find a judge who has a reputation for being above board so that when this, not guilty verdict comes down, it will be plausible uh, that this was a real verdict. And so he then sets out on this quest to do this with the hopes of kind of earning the trust and the favor of Pat Marcy in the first ward. And, And so this ends up being the first two episodes of the podcast and he finds a judge who had a very honorable reputation who no one would have suspected and convinces him to take money in this case and to throw it in Harry Alleman's favor. But right up until the last minute, Bob is totally freaked out that this judge is gonna come about face, especially as the verdict day comes closer and it's all in the papers. And mm-hmm. so actually on the day that the verdict is coming out, Bob gets in his car and is in the process of driving out of Chicago in anticipation that the judge may double back on this deal <laughs> and that Bob will be left on the hook. And he he's driving in the car when he hears on the radio not guilty. And he literally pulls the car around and drives back into Chicago. He's fixed this case and he's the man now. And Chicago is kind of his. And this marks his ascent into the upper echelon of the the outfit, as it's called in Chicago.
2: So what is then Bob's story? What is he typical in the sense of, I mean, for the most part, at least on the East Coast, all the uh, mobsters, pretty much acted the same way, kind of dressed the same way, always hanging out at social clubs. Um, Is Bob unique in any way that he doesn't seem like a typical mob attorney?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And the answer is yes, on many levels. So first of all, Bob is an Irish Catholic guy, and the outfit of the mob in Chicago is predominantly Italian-American.
2: This is like Um, a scene out of The Godfather. (laughs) Totally, right? Tom is in (laughs) it. Where's Jimmy Kahn? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. He's the consigliere. So- He is an outsider on that. That's like a kind of crossover of tribes. But that distinction is important for a few reasons, one of which is that, you know, these are generalities, but the judges and cops tended to be Irish. So if if you think about it, if they need a guy to fix cases, deal with cops and deal with judges, it helps to have a guy who's of that clan, which, which Bob is. So that, that's a meaningful distinction. Also, Bob comes from a family of cops for several generations back. In fact, his grandfather was a cop who was killed on the job and whose murderer got free, likely because the case was fixed. So there's the, it's a convoluted right history of corruption, police on one side, the outfit on the other. But what's interesting about Bob is his dad, who's also a cop, is a totally honest cop and is, was studying to become a priest in the seminary. So Bob grows up in this incredibly devout family where they all say the rosary every day together. The father is kind of, uh, in kind of imposing his very strong morality. The kids, other than Bob, are pretty much all on the up and up. And Bob is the black sheep of the family. And what I see about Bob is he's kind of, he, he becomes a cop for a while until he realizes there's a better game in town. And that's working with the outfit. And it works great with the outfit for a long time until it doesn't when he realizes that he has to answer to their top people and at some point that goes south.
2: So um, I read that Bob had a gambling problem, right? He was a gambler. He was. So to what degree was his gambling part of the greater downfall of Bob? Okay, so that's a great question.
1: And it's one that we explore through the podcast. Um, so I think the first thing you have to know is, is, it's worth just knowing that the podcast opens on this spring day in 1986, when Bob has been the mob's fixer and lawyer for a number of years and is in that inner circle. And for no apparent reason that anyone can figure out and which people still debate to this very day Bob walks in off the street to a federal prosecutor's office to their mob specialist and says to him, I can deliver the first ward. I can deliver the mob. I know where all the bodies are buried. I know all the secrets. I'll tell you the secrets. And, and in fact, he he soon offers to wear a wire. And so from the federal prosecutor's standpoint, he, he said to me, he said, there was something wrong. Like, Is this guy a nut job? Is, yep. he, an, is he a mole? Is he a plant by the mob? Does he have a messiah complex? And then he said to me, the prosecutor said, but then again, who am I to say no to the messiah? Uh, Because I think that it was so tantalizing what Bob promised to offer that they, they couldn't they couldn't say no, but they were skeptical. And one of the first questions that they look at is the very question that you raise, which is that this guy is clearly a gambler. So is he coming to us because. He has gambling debts and this is out. Is he in trouble with the law? Is he in, is he, is there a case on him right now? Like what is and the truth is he did have some gambling debts, but it does not appear that the gambling debts were so large that they would explain him flipping for that reason alone. And in fact, what becomes apparent is, is that as he agrees to wear a wire, he sticks around for another three and a half years, um, in which time um he manages to pay off those debts or or not, or get out of having to pay them. And so this idea that I think if he was truly on the run because he thought some guys were gonna break his legacy because he owed money, mm-hmm. he wouldn't stick around for another three and a half years and offer to wear the wire. He would say, I'm gonna give you all the secrets, get me the hell out of Dodge, which he doesn't. But so so the FBI kind of starts going down its list of possible reasons why this guy would flip and no good reason comes up. And that doesn't sit well with them. It's this kind of gnawing
2: thing of like- It doesn't sit well with me because there's always a reason. There's people, always people. reason. I, I just, I can't believe that he just had an epiphany that day. It's just so, very hard to believe.
1: So here's my take. I mean, I'm not gonna give you all everything because I want your listeners to listen to the podcast,
0: but here's the way I, I came to see it, okay? Bob grows up in this house. We take this few seconds off to inform you our valued loyal listener. Join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness wellness updates from around the globe. Enjoy the show.
1: ...where he's always breaking the rules with his, with his, with his fit parents. And we do a whole episode on this. There's this bit about his dad. His dad kind of couldn't bring himself to, to spank Bob, to fully discipline him. The rules in the household, Bob could flout. And as a police officer was very fast and loose with the rules too. Bob never took explicit bribes, but cops get away with all kinds of stuff. So Chicago is a place where there's no rules and Bob doesn't like following the few rules that he's forced to follow. And eventually, as he works his way into the mob and he likes that he can even be the bigger man, he can park in the mayor's spot, he can do whatever he wants, but he starts butting heads with Pat Marcy. And Pat Marcy is the guy who's the mob's political czar. And Marcy basically tells Bob in no uncertain terms, you will do what you were told to do, full stop, if you know what's good for you. And I think that what in the end motivates Bob more than anything is that going to the feds is a way to hit the basically the nuclear button. He blows up his life, he blows up the entire Chicago system and he blows up Pat Marcy too. And there's a little bit of like, F you, I'm gonna gonna stick it to the whole system. So you're absolutely right, there's always a reason I think it was a power move mm, and there's many okay. other reasons too. I do think that Bob, I, I, I think that it's complicated though. I think I will say, and I don't want to go on too long, but I, I do think on some part it was moved by morality. I do think that he was tired of always taking the kind of or often taking these kind of crooked paths. He saw the uglier side of things. Um, and I think that there was mixed in there an element to kind of write a system that he thought was just kind of totally corrupt um, but I think power was a big part of it, too.
2: So he decides to cooperate. And then um, how does this work as far as he is uh, recording these conversations surreptitiously? how For how long does this go on and what does it lead to?
1: Yeah. So uh, to give you this big picture again, remember, Chicago was this incredibly corrupt place. Everyone knew it was corrupt. I mean... it's like going back to dead people voting in the JFK versus Nixon election. People know this about Chicago, right? And it starts to get cleaned up and to some extent it does, but the mob continues to operate with impunity. So what Bob is promising to do is to expose the mob system of corruption. And by doing so, breaking the chokehold that it has on the city's government and the city's judicial system. So the feds are like, okay, fine. Wire up and prove it. because at the end, like at this point, you know, Bob's talking for a few months, and it, it, at some point, it's just like, okay, talk is cheap. Wire up and prove that you can get close to the people you know. So he does, and he ends up wearing that wire for three and a half years, which isn't an eternity, actually, in undercover time. Usually, people go in and out for, you know, much quicker because the longer you're out there, the longer the chance of exposure. Right. And and right out of the gate, there's some like really bad mishaps. Like he goes to get this like low because he wants to go after Marcy right after the right from the start because there's a lot of ego with Bob, right? I mean, he's like, I'm going to deliver you the mob. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. He's one of those guys, huge ego. And the FBI and his handlers, I interview them both. There's a woman, she's terrific. Her name is Marie Dyson. And she's like, she's got this Southern drawl. And she's like, no, 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 Bob. You know, you're going to start small and then we'll move up big. And one of the small ones, he goes up against a bookie just to prove he can do, he can do it. And on his very first time out of the gate, he gets out of the car to meet the bookie. The bookie is staring at him from the restaurant window and the taper slides out of the ace bandage right down his leg and is dangling out. Like this is like day one wearing a wire and he panics. He thinks he's been exposed. He goes back. And kind of like by the grace of God, this bookie didn't see it. And so Marie Dayson, his handler was kind of right in a way, which is like, you know, you don't go after the big guy when you don't know what the hell you're doing. Two and a half years in, he starts getting close to Marcy and really uh incriminating. And there's a number of really close calls. Um, and 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 again, I should just point out, I'm not just taking Bob's word for it. This is where it became. Hugely important to both get a hold of the wiretaps, some of which you're able to hear on the podcast, um, and also to interview both of his
2: handlers. So just for a matter of perspective, you know, when we think of surveillance now because of this digital world that we're in, it's much easier to capture things, whether you're working with the FBI or not. But you're taking us back to the 1980s where you didn't really have cell phones. Nope. Um, you didn't really have computers for the most part. You know what we're talking about, like a home computer. Um, so what was the technology like? Because what you're describing with the with the bulky tape recorder falling down his pant leg, it sounds like the devices are pretty big.
1: Yeah, they're probably like, this is my, my Zoom, which we use in the podcasting business. You can... For your listeners, it's about the size of a small shoe. Um, And, you know, you would never take that undercover. Now you would have something that like fits in your, like, you know, the size of your toenail. But back then that's all they had. And it was tape. It was, you know, we're old enough to remember like the old cassette tapes, tape to tape. So, and Bob being Bob with a lot of ego, was like, give me the biggest tape, you know, the one that can go the longest number of hours. So it was, it was clunky. And this, you're, you're very right to point out or to intuit that this creates problems. So they're constantly moving it around his body, right? It's almost like a game of, of um, you know, hide and go seek where you keep hiding it in new places so that no one thinks, isn't it weird that he never takes his boot off or what's that bulge? So they're at one point they've got it on his lower back and he's walking into this restaurant called counselors row, which is this hangout where a lot of these mob guys go. And Pat Marcy, this, Political czar for the mob, he lets Bob walk in first, and he kind of puts his hand on Bob's back, just the way you kind of do when you like, you know, you go first. And Bob feels certain that Marcy has he he, the it. hand goes right to where the recorder is, and yeah. Bob feels that he's basically on the verge of being outed. So what he does, it, it's it's really pretty clever. He he gets in, he doesn't panic. He gets into the restaurant, and he says, "Oh." you know, my back has really been killing me. I, ever since I, I threw it out the, and this brace is not helping and he just throws the brace in is just, you know, but the brace is meant to be the decoy so that yep. if Marcy's thinking, what did he feel? It's the back brace. And he continues with this back injury, you know, and then he stays away for, and, and it's all on the wire and the handlers were also, were talking, told me about this and said, that it was quick thinking on Bob's part. Well, Bob goes back like two days later. Right. And, um, Right when he gets in there, Marcy says to him, just gestures for him to follow him out of the restaurant, which he hadn't done before. And Steve Bowen, who's the handler who I interviewed, who was there at the time, is across the street watching. And he sees Bob and Marcy walk out of the restaurant into the parking garage next door. So Bob says he's following Marcy into the parking garage, and they end up in this grimy little bathroom and Marcy says you go first and Bob has two guns on him which he's not supposed to have as a as an FBI informant but his handlers look the other way and he says he's he's basically got the gun, hands on the gun ready to like he thinks he's about to be killed and Marcy just goes into the bathroom and just starts taking a piss in front of him and Bob's like why why is he like what's happening and the handlers on the outside and he's getting ready to come in and finally, the handler's like, "This is a setup. He's about to, he's about to be whacked." The handler runs into the garage and he sees Bob and Marcy. All Marcy did was bring him into the bathroom, urinate in front of him, basically, and go out. And Bob said, "I realized afterwards it was a test that Marcy was trying to see if I would follow him into the bathroom." Because if I was a rat, I would never follow him into the bathroom because that would be doom. And so because I followed him into the bathroom, I kind of lived to tell another day.
2: Hmm, that's so um, interesting. That was, yeah. that, was,
1: that was Bob's take on it, which, which seems very credible to me and seemed, you know, credible to his handler as well. Um, but it it's this game of like, this guy is getting closer and closer. Like, how many times can you do that?
0: he tells us about his story as it happens in real time and in real life it's nasty boy cc the truest story never told go get a load of that happiness because happiness is healthy as we know it join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness wellness updates from around the globe enjoy the show
1: How many times can you have your guy go in there and come that close before you pull them. And and this is what's happening throughout these two and a half years is that the handlers keep reassessing, do we have enough info? Because they also, they need Bob to live because first of all, they feel responsible for him as a human being, but secondly, they want him to testify. And so if they push this too far, they have both the moral issue of this guy's blood on his hand, on their hands, but they also don't have a witness to testify.
2: So yeah. let's get to the part now where Bob gets the goods, and how is this done? Is this done through um, indictment, yeah. um, indictments, or and how many people are brought down? And while they're being arrested, where's Bob?
1: <laughs> yeah. So a few things happen. He is able, wearing a wire, he he's able to get um, he's able to get on tape a number of these guys offering to do illegal things, um, fixing cases, et cetera. And some of it's really clever, by the way, they don't wanna actually try to pass bribes in real cases. So they create fake cases with, a, with fake civil disputes where both the plaintiff and the defendant are actually secretly undercover operators. And um, and the, the judge is bribed in the case and they, that's how they implicate the judge, but they're not affecting real justice. Um, which I thought was very creative, you know, That is crime-fighting. But anyway, so they build this case, they get all this stuff on tape and um, and Bob knows he's got to leave town. And he basically calls his family together at a fish restaurant um, at uh, around Thanksgiving and says, I'm, le- I'm leaving town. Um, Does he didn't tell, tell them the what happened. Story. He leaves it kind of vague with them. The part that's kind of, it's interesting. So Bob was the black sheep of the family, right? He was always kind of up to no good. And he thought that when this all came out, I think he honestly thought that he was going to come across as the hero who had cleaned up the city. And he had hoped that, like, I think on some level that he would re- hit his father had already passed away, but I think he thought he would be redeemed in his mother's eyes, as like, look what my my the son that was always breaking windows in the back I look what he did. And um that couldn't have been further from the truth. Yeah, when I the could story see that yeah, when the story broke in Chicago, he was as Bob describes it, he was the rat of all time. and he was, it was he was vilified in in the press. And look, many of the things that Bob did were not so great at all, fixing the, all the various cases, including murder cases. So the bad things that he that he had done in the past come out, but even the, the things that he did that he hoped would be seen as a, in a kind of as redemption uh, were portrayed as, as as betrayal and being a rat. how many people
2: end up being arrested and did they get people like judges
1: yeah they did they got judges they got police officers um they got a state uh senator they got about 25 people um so it was it was fairly large they indict marcy who's the maz political czar and he goes to trial and I almost told you what happened, but I'm not gonna tell you because I have Oh, to, I
2: almost tricked you, Jake. You almost, you're very good,
1: you got me. You, um, but but it, it ends up being quite traumatic. And I will just tease one of the thing, which is that what he does, that I think this is probably the singular most fascinating part of the story. If you remember from the beginning of our interview, I say, Bob gets his big break with the mob because he fixes a case where a hitman walks free.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, Bob reveals what he's done and offers to testify at trial and they try to, and they prosecute this hitman again. And the hitman says, hey, look, you can't do that. This is double jeopardy. I'm protected by the U.S. Constitution. And that appeal goes all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. And the ruling in the end is, this guy, Bob Cooley, appears to have fixed this case. Therefore, this hitman was never in real jeopardy in the first place. Therefore, the retrial of this hitman may go forward. It's one of the wow. only times in US history is that I've been able to tell where someone has tried twice for murder.
2: Amazing. And so this
1: also becomes this kind of dramatic um, kind of bookends for for Bob's story, and then he vanishes. and And to this day, Bob is a hugely polarizing figure. There are people who say, oh, he cleaned up the city. And there are people to this day that kind of curse his name and think that he's just 100% opportunist. And, um, and what you'll see in the podcast is, is a really morally complicated and convoluted person in which um, it, no two people are going to come to the exact same conclusion of what they think about this guy.
2: That's so interesting. You know, I uh, once interviewed a hitman for the Philly Atlantic City mob Nick the Crow, Caramondi, and he had turned informant and then he had done his work and he was in hiding. And I did an interview with him, which just telling you how we even got the interview back then was like craziness. Like I literally was sitting at my desk. I worked for WPVI Action News in Philadelphia and I'm sitting at my desk in Atlantic City waiting for a call because I've been told to sit and wait for a call because I can't reach out to them I have to wait for them to call me and and he finally calls me and then he finally agrees to let me interview him and he says to me I am not going to tell you where we're going to do the interview until the day before Mm. and no one can know where you're going to go and I'm like but I got to get a plane ticket and I got to bring a photographer with me and he's like you're going to find out the day before and you know here I am telling my boss about this and he's like what (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, these are the terms. Like, I can't tell anyone. You're going to be the only one who knows. He had to find a photographer who agreed to do this with me. Mm. Um, Talk I was young. Yeah, godfather. It's totally. I know. Like I was scene, in my twenties. Right? I was, you know, where the gun I, is hidden
1: behind the toilet.
2: I was, you know what, youth brings both fearlessness and really stupidity right it's like sure i got no problems i got balls i'll meet the guy well that's funny though it almost makes me wonder like when
1: you look back on that moment do you think to yourself now i was i was safe i or do you look back and think you you weren't
2: i was as safe as i could have been i had to trust this guy and you're like really you're gonna trust the hitman um no, but,
1: I, I, but that doesn't totally surprise me right like there there's it's like honor among thieves kind of thing right there yeah, are oh there totally it's like he's not just gonna kill some random woman who has kind of trusted his you know there's this sense of honor right among these guys
2: yeah and, and he clearly wanted to tell his story and philadelphia was the place he wanted the story told mm. um because people who do the things that they do, wanna tell their story when they have a chance to say why, and Mm -hmm. I'm not that bad. I do believe at the end of the day, he needed to say, and I'm sure Bob was the same way. He wants you to see, I am not a monster. I mean, the same thing happens when I interview convicted killers. They sit down because they want you to know they're not a monster so here's this guy you know i mean he's definitely i mean this is a hitman. and so he calls me that day you know the day before to tell me where i have to go and the only person who knows is my boss in philadelphia and i i'm never going to say where i flew to but i flew to this location and, and the only th- thing he said to me was so you need to be in the lobby of such and such place at such and such time <laughs> don't worry I'll find you. And I'm like, oh, he says, and I want you to get a room. And I'm like, oh, oh, my God, I'm going to get killed. <laughs> but we needed a place to do the interview, right? Right. So I go, I, I get a room. I'm just standing in the lobby. It's so ridiculous. And then this man comes up from behind me. <laughs> you know, sounding all South South Philly. And he says, what room did you get? <laughs> I'm like, I'll give him a key. I'll meet you there. Okay. And he's got like a baseball cap, a wig, a bomber jacket, the, the whole, the whole uh, bit. And he's a scrawny little guy too. Yeah, I mean, he that's he's, he's, he's not a very big guy. We go in, we do the interview, you know, and I'm, I'm, again, it's fascinating. His explanation has stuck with me my entire career and even in my life and my personal life. When I said to him, yeah, but you killed, and I listed all the people he had killed, I said, so how do you do that? And he and how'd you end up doing all of this? And his answer was quite simple. He said, it wasn't me, it was the wall around me. And I had to really sit and think about this philosophy of his. Um, and I've had decades to chew on it. And I, I think, you know how I think it was the simplest way of saying this was the circumstance in which I found myself. I didn't have a choice. I had to do it because of where I was. And Bob Bob says things like that too a lot. He'll say like,
1: "Oh, it was a mob murder." He'll say it was like, "How do you justify the case where the hitman killed this guy?" Uh, it was mob on mob. It was not like I'm going to create this partition where this is this other realm that exists that is divorced from our reality and within that the 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 the, the basic rules of of humanity don't don't apply. I do think like I was thinking about as you're telling that story, I'm thinking, would you should you go to the hotel room? If it was a serial killer that you were profiling, you would never. I would go to not, the hotel room, never, because right? there's a kind not. of predatory, totally unhuman. But with this guy, it's business. It's like a different. It's like a different mindset. It's it's business that he can he can somehow turn that switch on and off. Um, which in a way gives you like a little more sense of ease because you're sent, you, can, you can believe that switch works and it's going to almost certainly be flipped off when you're in that hotel room. But it's still deeply chilling to think that he can flip that switch and 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 attribute his actions to something else to the wall
2: you know yeah and plus Um, he had already crossed over remember he was no longer part of the mob he was an informant at this point you know they were done with him he had little value because he had already been outed in the cases so he was of no value going forward to anyone but he was still obviously very worried about his self-preservation. That was more important to him. Did, In many did, ways, did, did, he had to you, trust me more than I had to trust him, if you can think about it from his perspective. Oh, sure,
1: sure, because you could blow his, you could expose him. And yeah, I mean, this is this is this thing of like, when I when I interviewed Bob and the many interviews I had with him, I really don't think there was a singular moment where he expressed remorse for what he'd done like genuine remorse now he's Mm -hmm. different from your character in that he's not pulling the trigger but in a way he's making a decision which is almost as important which is that he's allowing the murderer to go free
0: um which is we take this few seconds off to inform you our valued loyal listener about the best health and fitness podcast shows from the nespod studios enjoy the show
1: is you know <laughs> pretty perverse in some ways right they're both and, horrible <laughs> right they're and I, and I i kept on waiting like you know there's there's so many stories in the world out there about the repentant sinner. I've done wrong. You know, the, even the even the guy on death row. who I've done wrong, and I embraces Jesus, and 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 you know, and is in is in some ways like um, set free by the. You know, I did this thing. It was bad, I, and I'm, I'm atoning for my sin, and Jesus forgive me, and all this and that. Nothing close to that happens with Bob, and it doesn't sound like it happens with your hitman either. Where to the end, it's kind of like, well, this is this was the world. Of how it worked. And the, the thing that Bob would say to me many times was like you, Jake, you don't understand how it was then. And he was right. I don't, I mean, I was not there. I did not come of age in a world where corruption was normative and cases were fixed and guys were whacked. And, and maybe if that was my normal, my, I would be more like him. Like that's totally possible.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but um, nonetheless, it's, it's chilling. I think sometimes when you just you're expecting the person to be like, well, all these years later, I gotta tell you, you know, no.
2: And there were parts of him that were actually likable. And this is the part that always, as a reporter has, has always baffled me about criminals or people who do horrible things. You can meet the most despicable human being and they will have these moments of humanity or a sense of humor and you like find yourself like sitting there across from a killer, you know, and kind of liking something about them, which like really plays with your head.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that I, I agree with you. I mean, they always say that, that you know, even, you know, criminals can be charming, so even sure. sociopaths, whatever. I mean, the thing that I found really fascinating about Bob was that he, there were qualities that were very admirable in him. When he went, when he wore the wire, he showed tremendous Courage. I mean, what I mean, he he showed a courage that I'm confident that I couldn't have mustered in the heat of the moment, again and again putting his life on the line. Um, his actions cleaned up the corruption that was going on in the city. You can argue until the cows come home whether what the motivation for doing this was, whether it was noble or not, but you you can't argue with the results that it made a positive impact on um not totally destroying, but greatly reducing corruption and weakening uh, the mob. And so I think that it becomes this thing of like, it almost raises this interesting philosophical question, which is, is a good deed any less good if you're slightly uncertain about the motivations behind it? You know, in these kind of Hollywood versions of these stories, there are these kind of epiphanies that characters have where they do something for singular reasons but you know as well as i do that even far less loaded decisions that we make about where we go out for dinner or who we marry or what we do for any it's 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 a it's a swirling confluence of reasons and so with Bob, I, I I see it as, yes, power was a big part of it, this idea that I don't like being bullied by this mob guy who's telling me what to do, but also like the hope of, of redemption and maybe the help of escaping his circumstances. I mean, all these factors funnel into, I think, this
2: this moment where he decides to do what he does. And in the end, he regrets it. So I know there's not a lot you can tell me about Bob, but can you at least tell me Bob is alive? Yeah. Is Bob living his best life in a public way or is he fearful I don't think he's
1: I'd, enough time has passed he he flipped in 86 he disappears in 89 so we're approaching you know 30 years so Is he in
2: hiding still?
1: Yeah, I mean he's yeah. he, he he he's living under an assumed name. He's living in a place that is not publicly known. Um, I don't think that every time he opens the door, he's looking over his shoulder that he's going to be shot because 30 years, you kind of develop some uh, maybe earned sense of like, you're a bit safer, but he blew up his life. Like he, he, when he, when he hit that button, when that moment, and this is the conversation we have now, he he's living modestly. I'll tell you that he's living very modestly. I say he's living in a small room at the edge of the desert, which is exactly the case. And I think he often thinks back on that moment where he walked into the prosecutor's office and said, I can deliver the mob. And I think that he did in many ways. He brought down his antagonist, this guy, Pat Marcy, who he was tired of being told what to do by. He ended this system of corruption, but he also ended his life as he knew it. I mean, it really was the nuclear option. Yeah, And so it's like, you know, it's like, yeah, I win, but the cost was kind of everything. Now, people would argue, they'd say, well, he didn't go to jail, which some of the people that he informed on did. And so he got a pass, which I've heard that from listeners who've written back to me and saying like, you know, he got off easy. But man, you listen to that podcast. He did not, there are, punishment comes in different types of shapes and forms and not all of it is behind bars. Mm -hmm. And this is not, He's not laughing his way to the canons. Um, Well, it's
2: consequences for your actions because he cannot be completely absolved from what it is that he did. mm -hmm. Even if he's not looking for absolution from anyone else, it's just, that's just the reality. This is the life you lived and these are the people that you you worked with. And so therefore, yeah, this is what happens to you. I know the same thing. uh, Nikki, last I checked on him, is living a very meager very Mm. impoverished life in a place i don't think i mean let me tell you he's not rolling in atlantic city
1: same yeah that that that's sound, and i'm yeah i think that for bob the kind of cruel twist of fate was he had lived this life where by his own admission he was a corrupt lawyer and had done a number of bad things and then he flips and we can debate whether it was a power move or not, but he was at least hoping that this was going to be seen as the good thing that he did. The kind of right, the, the good that righted the wrong. And the one kind of redemptive act that, that, and in fact that act, he then just, as I said before, ends up being vilified as a turncoat and a rat. We think we know these mob stories because we've seen them on TV and we've seen them in the movies and we have, but, in each one of these are these kind of like profound moral um discussions and ideas that go well beyond the mob and it it, it brings to mind your the visit with the hitman and kind of like the wall and i'm gonna i I will not soon forget what you said he said the wall did it it wasn't Uh, me
2: it was the wall around me so all i'm saying is
1: is that There's so much more here than just the kind of all the cliched, you know, little story bits that we think about
0: Mm -hmm. anyway.
2: So, Jake, this has been fascinating. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you.